Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, October the 9th, 2023. Trying to be cheerful, although it's hard these days. What a difference 10 days makes in international politics. Uh, 10 days ago on uh, September the 27th, seems a long time ago now, I had my friend Jason Pack on the show talking about why disorder may be the new order. Jason is a friend and uh, his um, disorder podcast is an excellent uh, podcast. It's also a sponsor of our show. Today, of course, that disorder is everywhere. You just look at the headlines uh, from the New York Times, the CNN, Washington Post, all media around the world is focused on the disorder currently in Israel and the Gaza Strip. So it would be good to get Jason back on the show. He's still in New Jersey, hurt his knee. Uh, so Jason, you've been one of the the theorists of this new disorder, your podcast focuses on it. You began life intellectually as an analyst of Libya. You saw it up close early. Is this exhibit A on the new disorder? What's happening today in uh, Israel, Gaza, Palestine? Sure. I mean, the events are horrific and brutal and barbaric, but they're not surprising. Unfortunately, the connection between internal divisions in Israel and the judicial overhaul and then the reservists going on strike and the Iranians wanting to scupper any Israeli-Saudi negotiations leading to an attack like this is not surprising. And in fact, what we need to realize is that Hamas and Iran and Hezbollah, they don't have a different Middle East order that they want. They just want to disorder the globe. And they're very happy to be killing Jewish Israelis while doing so. Jason, I'm rereading uh, Rick Perlstein's Majestic Reagan Land at the moment. As it happens, I'm getting towards the end of the book and focusing on the hostage crisis in Iran. Uh, why? Why is today any different from the late '70s and the Iranian taking of the American hostages and the chaos in the world back then? Hmm. You're right that 1979 was a particularly chaotic year. There was the siege of the Grand Mosque in Mecca, which caused a Saudi overreaction. Carter was perceived as weak for a range of reasons, and the Iranians were able to exploit that after the revolution against the Shah. I assert, and I'm, I'm open to people who don't agree with this, of course, I assert that the difference between other times of disorder in the global system and now is that Back then, we had a hegemonic power, America, and we had a coalition of allies in the West. And even the Soviets, our opponents, they were trying to promote a kind of world order. Now we have opponents who don't try to order their near abroad. They are merely interested in disordering it. And I think that that's a huge difference. But a similarity is that when you take hostages of democracies, particularly democracies like the U.S. and America, excuse me, the U.S. and Israel, for whom there is a huge electoral pressure to get those hostages back, that 
is the same and 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 the compromises and the groveling that might be caused by the taking of the hostages in 79 or today that's no different i guess in and i'm putting words into your mouth jason correct me if i'm wrong but the difference between the 70s and today is that had hamas or hezbollah been around then they would have been the clients of the soviet union and they wouldn't have got the green line from moscow from the kremlin to do what they did at the weekend is is that true do you think well i'm not sure that they wouldn't have gotten the green light from moscow if they were a state keep in mind that the yom kippur war in 1973 it's true that the soviets didn't know about it because sadat got rid of the russian advisors in 1972 so the israelis thought well they can't be militarily prepared for another war because we so kicked their ass in 67 and they just got rid of the Russian military advisors in 72. How could they be preparing this? But the Russians were not dissatisfied with that invasion. And of course they were in contact with the Baathy Syrian regime at that time. So I think the difference is that the Soviets worked with states and they tried to have them adopt socialist economic principles. Today, Putin's Russia, he doesn't care what the economic principles of Hamas or Iran is. He doesn't care what their ideology is. He's just happy that they spew disorder. And and there are a lot of things going on behind the scenes here. One is Russian troll farms working to promote certain pro-Hamas narratives. And then the other is the overt Iranian desire to just disorder the Middle Eastern alliances. And that's not what the Soviets did. They're the 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 filter bubbles and the propaganda war is very different today than it would have been in the past the odd thing though is that this all disorder isn't a a, a prudon like anarchy i mean the, the 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 regime in iran is conservative putin is in his own way conservative so these are not ideologists of disorder they're not anarchists are they oh by no means anarchy is more ordered than the kind of disorder that Putin or the Ayatollahs or some Trumpians and other neo-populists want. It's just the more that disorder reigns out there, the less that my people will be frustrated with me or get rid of me here. Hamas is not popular in Gaza. I mean, and we have to have a huge amount of sympathy for the Gazans who are now under siege. I'm sure that most of them did not want this war. Some of them might be proud, which I find kind of disgusting, but they're proud. Look, hey, we stuck it to the man. You know, we beat this great military power and and we jumped the wall and invaded them. But most Gazans, they'd like to get rid of Hamas because Hamas has not delivered for them the humanitarian uh, creature comforts that they should have gotten with the billion dollars that Qatar has given to Gaza. But the more that there's a war, it creates an us and them situation. That's the very nature of this. And then not only Palestinians in Gaza, but many Muslims throughout the world feel that they need to support the Palestinian cause because it creates this us versus them narrative, which we're seeing all on the internet. If you go through your social media, nuance is completely lost as soon as there's something like this. Yeah, I mean, I try and avoid it. It ruins my lunch. Um undermines my appetite for anything. Uh, Jason, to what extent, though, are, are there synergies here? You noted that 
Hamas is not particularly popular in, in Gaza City, uh, Netanyahu isn't particularly popular in Tel Aviv either. He's an extremely unpopular. And that's a really, really important point. It may be controversial to say this, but you have to keep in mind that the Israelis fostered Hamas. If we go back to the 1980s when Arafat was still a terrorist that no one would shake hands with, the Likud was interested in having a more radical, quote unquote, terrorist organization that could suck support away from the PLO and Arafat. And there's obviously a large literature on the relationships between Begin and Shamir and other uh, Israeli leaders and the precursors of Hamas. This is the same relationship that the Israelis had with Amal, the Shia group in southern Lebanon, which they were willing to work with until, you know, the invasion went so wrong in 1982 and Amal began to be seen as undermined and it gave rise to Hezbollah. So the Israeli right has had strange bedfellows and they really need to be held to account that they were giving more work permits to Hamas over the last year so as to weaken Abu Mazen and the traditional Palestinian Fatah movement. And they're like, oh, there won't be a war from Hamas because we've just given them these 15,000 work permits. And like, that's not a big deal. We can focus on, you know, undermining that there's going to be any peace negotiations. So the Israeli right, because it, to my mind, it's a disordering force, the Likud, has tried to play off all sides to avoid having peace negotiations. And this is what they got. Jason, you point, I'm not saying you point fingers, but when you go on social media, everyone's pointing fingers at everyone else. Everyone is blaming somebody else. Um, is there any point, and I'm not saying that you're a finger pointer, but you're suggesting that the Israeli right have a responsibility for, for Hamas and that they need to be made more accountable. No one's being accountable. I mean, Netanyahu probably won't be accountable. Certainly Hamas won't. Is there any point in even using this language of accountability in an age, your your age of disorder, where accountability is literally irrelevant? It's gone out the window. You're right that something about the polarization of social media means even in democracies where people have a civic uh, mindedness and they follow the news, it's more difficult to hold people to account. My senator here in New Jersey is Menendez. Menendez has been known to be corrupt for 18 years. He just denies the charges and he's still a serving senator and can, no one can make him step down despite the gold bars that they found. Well, there's no, but then I knew about that. There have always been corrupt senators. In, in, no, but I think you're onto something is that there is a degree to which our current age makes it more difficult to hold people to account. But to get at your larger point, I do think that the discourse of accountability is relevant in a democracy like Israel, because the right wing, both in the US and in Israel, it's slightly different in the UK. So let's stick with the US and Israel. They say that they're the party of security, right? You vote for Republicans because they're strong on security. You vote for Likud because it's strong on security. And now it's clearly been manifested that Netanyahu and all his settler party cronies have ignored the intelligence. They have prioritized the wrong threat. They moved reservists towards the West Bank that the bases near Sterot and other places were left empty. 
I think that the Israeli electorate will hold him to account. And I'd like to focus on a slight positive here, which is that although my theory is the theory of global enduring disorder, it's enduring because it promotes a feedback loop. It's not enduring because it lasts forever. And there's going to be a point where people snap out of it and be like, oh, wow, these neo-populists don't deliver what they say they're going to deliver. Trump, Trump built a wall, but it doesn't make the illegal migration diminish because the wall was never completed. And Netanyahu talked about security and he talked about this, but he didn't actually do anything to you know, really keep Israelis safe. And hopefully they're going to emerge from this conflict and want to throw him out and have... Mm. A, I've heard that argument for years about him and others, and it never see. I, I, I can't say I share your optimism. I hope you're right. What about you're an old hand in international relations theory? You studied in the U.S. in Oxford and then Cambridge. Ah, um, I mean, how do we make sense of what happened from the Hamas point of view? Is there any rational theories to make sense of this? I mean, can you use rational choice or rational reasoning to make sense of, of, of what happened at the weekend? From the Hamas perspective, I think you can, sadly. If you're Hamas and you're able to not get caught digging all these tunnels, bringing in the arms, and then you do something that no one thought you possibly could do, which is break through the kind of hermetically sealed barrier, which was supposed to be keeping people inside Gaza and you rampage and you kill hundreds and hundreds of Israelis and you kidnap about a hundred of them, you cause an overreaction, which creates an us versus them dynamic. The 9-11 was successful from a bin Laden perspective because it made at least 5% of Muslims globally feel like they had to choose and they were willing to choose you know, the Islamist or jihadi position rather than the global war on terror position. So Hamas created the us versus them dimension, which they thrive on. And then that makes perfect sense. Um, sadly, it does. So uh, there are lots of comparisons with this being Israel's 9-11. Are you suggesting that the real equivalence with 9-11 is it has unleashed a a massive or it will unleash a massive overreaction in the same way as America overreacted and invaded Afghanistan and Iraq and these catastrophic wars uh, are, that, that were caused by 9-11? I fear that it might. Um, some Israelis that I know are talking about it being a Pearl Harbor moment. That's more optimistic because Pearl Harbor really united Americans. There was a, a lot of anti-interventionism that Franklin Delano Roosevelt had to cope with and Pearl Harbor got everyone together. So people who say that this could be an Israeli Pearl Harbor moment, they're saying, oh, we can get past the divisions over the judicial overhaul and we can get past the reservist strike and we're all united again. I fear that they might be united for a few seconds, but those underlying divisions are not going to be cured. And then there is going to be an overreaction. So it's much more like a 9-11 you know, W. Bush overreach. But I do think that Israelis are smart enough that they are going to react against the unpreparedness. If you have to look back at the Yom Kippur War, which was 50 years in one day before the start of this war, the leadership, which was then uh, labor, Avodah, was thrown out and seen 
that they had been unprepared and they had done intelligence failures. And although they had been in power in Israel from 48 until 74, they were chucked out when the war was over. And many commentators are saying it could be the same now for Netanyahu, mm. as well as his hard right settler parties who preach security, but they didn't deliver any security. Yeah, we just did a show on uh, on the Yom Kippur War. I need to actually probably have the author back on the show to make sense of it in the context of, of what happened at the weekend. We're talking with Jason Pack, uh, the co-host of the excellent Disorder podcast, which is make trying to make sense of the disorder around the world, ordering, shall we say, the disorder. We can thank our sponsor, uh, Liberties Quarterly, uh, put out by my old friend Leon uh, Weaseltier. God knows what Leon thinks about what's happened at the weekend. I haven't talked to him. I think he must be particularly shocked. I'm going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back to talk more about the current situation in Israel, Gaza, Palestine with Jason Pack. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. You can check out more at libertiesjournal.com, including... Um subscribing to the excellent uh, quarterly. Uh, Jason, is there anyone left in the middle of this thing? I mean, people always used to talk about a few, the few hundred thousand or the few million people now in America caught between Biden and Trump. Uh, is there anyone left when it comes to this global disorder, people who are still unclear about what's happening, especially when it comes to the Middle East? And in that sense, if, if everyone knows where they stand, does it really, is this sort of moral moral debate really relevant since everybody is preaching to the converted, everyone's preaching to the choir? You're right. There may be very, very few people who are uncommitted in their sympathies on the Israel-Palestine questions and people are not willing to learn. Your question reminds me of the story of my 2006 New Year's party, Andrew. I lived in East Jerusalem, right by what's called French Hill, Givat Safatit. And I would also have some time in Abu Dis, which is towards Ramallah in Jerusalem. I thought, wouldn't it be fun to have some Israeli and Arab friends, as well as internationals, at a New Year's Eve party? So I chose a Christian Arab restaurant called Philadelphia, meaning brotherly love, of course, which is right by the Arab Colony Hotel, if you know where that is. And I invited Arabs and Jews and Christians. And I thought, well, if we're meeting at a Christian Arab restaurant, it'll be, uh, you know, a neutral ground. 30 or 40 people said that they would want to come. But on the day of New Year's Eve, what do you know? First, some Jewish friends began to text and say, oh, I can't make it, you know, it's in the Arab neighborhood, I wouldn't feel safe. Then later in the day, some of my Arab friends said, are Israelis going to be there? I can't be spending New Year's Eve with these Israelis. And, you know, sure enough, of the 30 people that RSVP'd, only my British and American and European friends showed. 
none of the Israelis or Arabs that I invited showed. And that was in 2006. It was a simpler time than now. So what I take away from that is the middle ground in all of our societies is hollowed out. And a lot of Israelis on the left will have learned to hate Arabs from this. And a lot of young people who didn't know to hate or not are going to come away with hate. And if you're a Gazan whose buildings are blown up, you're not able to see the nuance while the Israelis were only retaliating. Um, I, I don't have much optimism in terms of what this strews in people's hearts because it really is, is, is a polarizing event for both sides. Polarizing event in a situation that's already about as radically polarized and polarizing as you can get. And as you say, it confirms everyone's views that Hamas are crazy and evil and Nazi and that the Israelis are evil and Nazi and crazy. So I don't quite know where we go. It's May I propose very, some places we could go? Well, let me, a couple of areas that are interesting, conceptually at least is I mentioned the 79 hostage crisis. We have, the, the military stuff seems to be, so to speak, tidied up today, um, and it's probably ending. Um, but we have a, a massive hostage crisis. How is this going to play out? Well, the hostage crisis ties into ways that this could end positively. The Israeli policy of exchanging thousands of Palestinians, sometimes for just one, like Gilad Shalit, Israeli prisoner, is a dangerous precedent. And it therefore leads to the expectation that all Palestinian prisoners, no matter what they're accused of, murder or rape or whatever, will be released from Israeli jails to get the Israeli hostages back. That's a dangerous precedent. But, you know, it's always darkest before the dawn. It's not impossible to imagine that some kind of Saudi-Egyptian mediation could resolve this conflict and could lead to a maybe Saudi, Qatari, Egyptian condominium over Gaza, whereby there's more humanitarian aid and, you know, opening of colleges and IT faculties and things like this. And as part of a, a larger Middle East settlement, I have always opposed Netanyahu's approach of dealing with the Emiratis and Saudis to make bilateral deals while ignoring the Palestinians. I am on the, I guess, left of the US and UK debate on that question, which is that I think the Abraham Accords were a good idea, but it should have included the Palestinians, that, that by sidestepping the Palestinians, we've created a situation where they want to outflank the Sunni Gulf states and to work more with Iran and Hezbollah, and that's not good, right? So maybe there could be a a grand settlement from this and that because this was so horrific, it will require people to really deal with root causes. And I think that Biden is the man who understands these Do things. Do you really believe that though? Biden of all people is the yes, last. Yes, 100%. I think that Biden's policies towards Ukraine were much more long-term root causes than Obama would have been. Obama appeased over Crimea. Biden, because he's so old, has seen it all, and he understands you need to send the military aid. I mean, he came out and he made that statement in strong support of Israel. He shut down AOC and the squad because we need to, as it were, express this support for the attacked Israelis. And then he can pivot 
and he can acknowledge the Palestinian grievances and hopefully convene a major peace summit in a way that I don't think that a younger Obama. You stand now you're in somehow associated with, I mean, even if he could do that, he doesn't have the time. He's only got a year left before the election. Oh, this would have to be in a matter of weeks, Andrew. Yeah, this, but that's not going to, I mean, Jason, in all seriousness, that's not going to happen. A I think it could. I just, I'm sorry, I disagree. I mean, I mean, talk to Blake come to the table? What? I mean, who, who, who are you going to get to the table? The Israelis and Hamas? The mainstream Palestinian leadership? Like well, there Fatah. isn't a mainstream Palestinian leadership. That's the problem. And they're not going to come anyway. And even if they did, they're irrelevant. Okay. Um, I, I'm sorry. I consider that too defeatist. I, I do think that there are options here. And as bad as the crisis is, maybe you want to read Brett Stevens' uh, piece in the well, NYT. But Brett Apple Stevens page. is hardly a dispassionate, objective observer of this. No, but I mean, he makes he makes the point that it now is a moment for, for great power diplomacy where we, right. can, where we can unpick what had been previous roadblocks. Well, yeah, and Brett's been on the show. I, I think some of the criticism of him is, is somewhat unfair, but I don't see how you can have a discussion without Israel and Hamas at the table, and that's not going to happen. Hamas and Israel will not talk directly. I guess that that's the reason to have the interlocutors like the Saudis and the Egyptians and the Qataris that I mentioned. They will be having to coordinate with Hamas just as uh America and other actors will have to deal with the Israeli right-wing settlers who are not going to get all of the things that they want. Uh, I, I, I think it is not good to be so, as it were, defeatist and say, well, we can't get anything positive out of this. I'm the one who has the disorder podcast, and I do think that the world is going to be going towards more disorder. But with sane, centrist leadership taking risks and being willing to address uh, long-term challenges, we can create new institutions and novel ways of solving problems because the optimal solutions are out there. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I don't share any of your optimism. In, in, in the next few days and weeks, it seems, at least today on um, uh, October the 9th, Monday, afternoon Pacific time, that Israel is set on a siege of, of Gaza. We did a, a show a couple of weeks ago on the German siege of St. Petersburg, which I am sure many people will remind the world about. What could come out of this siege? I mean, what 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 is the outcome here? What are the Israelis trying to do in, in, in a military sense? Well, I have been to Gaza, Andrew, and I've also been in the southern Lebanese areas like the Shabah farms and mm. uh, Sidon and Tyre and I've been to all those places in southern Lebanon where the Israelis occupied them and did sieges. The goal of the siege will be to deprive Hamas of reinforcements and then to try to go door to door, house by house and cleanse Hamas from the surrounding civilian population. I think it's not possible. I don't agree with that military strategy. Yeah, I think the use that of the word cleanse is... Right. That's the word that they've used. Obviously, I don't yeah. think that cleansing is a good idea. Um, I see this as a time for big picture diplomacy. But sadly, if you listen to the Israeli defense minister, as well as people on the extreme Israeli right, like Smotrich and Ben Gavir and people like that, they want to use this as almost a, a moment to extract retribution. People said retribution is more important than getting the hostages back. That's crazy. But you've asked me what I think is going to happen. The siege is 
to punish the Palestinian population, to deprive Hamas of reinforcements. And the thought is that by denying them electricity and and you know food and supplies, they won't be able to operate effectively, whereas probably they'll just seize those things from the civilian population who will do the suffering. So I think that the siege is a bad idea for mid 21st century warfare. To put it mildly in mid 21st century propaganda of one kind or another, moral propaganda, we're just gonna have more uh, more and more escalating narrative of e evil Hamas and evil Israel. I don't and, and let me make that. one point here. There was an opportunity for the Israelis to play the victims rather than the supreme overdog oppressors, and they are likely going to miss it. And mm. that's because they have Netanyahu as their prime minister, and they have these hard right figures in the cabinet. If this had taken place when a Rabin or a Perez, let alone an Ehud Barak, was prime minister, I think that the communications as well as the military strategy would have been more nuanced and would have taken advantage of the ability to reframe not only for the Western world, but even for the global South, Israel's position. And that's likely to be missed, sadly. That's why I want Biden to step in and demand, you know, try and quatripartite uh, deals and, and connections with the, the Saudis and the Egyptians. Yeah, I, I, you may be right, but I don't show you any hope or optimism on that front. What about the more you're, you're, you're an observer of global politics of this disordered system? Sure. There's this transition from a, maybe an American centric system to maybe a, a bipolar one between America and, and China. Is there any optimist optimism there that this could be one of those crises that formalize the new system? I mean, in, in terms of China's role and China's place in this new world order? Well, now I can be the one who doesn't share your optimism. I, I don't think that this crisis will clarify anything in the role of China. We're already in the global enduring disorder. The Chinese are happy for there to be many disordered spots around the world because they don't try to fix them. Where are the Chinese trying to mediate the five most important ongoing civil wars in Ukraine, Yemen, Syria, Libya, and now Israel-Palestine, they're nowhere. The Chinese have no proposals. They're really happy for the disorder to continue because it uh, weakens American leadership and it, it uh, creates the inflationary and other cycles that they are quite happy. And it takes also pressure away from the fact that their economy is not doing well. They have the uh, Evergrande real estate scandal. They may want to do things in Taiwan, and and they're really happy to have, you know, our house on fire over here. And what about Syria? Very little has been said about Syria in this. I mean, had this happened twenty years ago, the Syrians would be diplomatically, militarily, ideologically on the front lines. Yeah. So I lived in Syria in two thousand four and five, and they were the Baathi regime, both under Bashar and under his father, Hafiz, the beating heart of Arabism. As the saying is in Arabic, and they did all the great old school rhetoric for the Palestinian and Arab nationalist cause. But the hypocrisy of 
the Syrians trying to lead any kind of Arab nationalist cause would be too much now, and they have no they have no power. Syria is essentially not a functioning state. When people say, well, Bashar al-Assad is back in power, he controls probably less than one-third of his territory. That, that's something to be, in, even in our age of disorder, Jason, that's something to be celebrated. I mean, the, the old age of order had, had Assad senior and junior at the heart, and that wasn't particularly encouraging or edifying either. Yeah, but the situation now is much, much worse. Um, obviously, in 1982 at Hama, 20 or 30,000 people were massacred and it was a tragedy. But in the 2011 to present post-Arab Spring Civil War, more than a million people have died and more than 10 million people have fled their homes. So the atrocities of the uh, pre-2011 period seem quite favorable to the uh, ongoing infinite civil war where you have Kurdish factions and Isl different Islamist factions from Jabhat al-Nusra to various ISIS-linked groups to different Al-Qaeda-linked groups to the Assad regime with its pro-Iranian leanings and it has Hezbollah brigades inside it. The situation is much, much, much worse. But you asked about Syria's role in the Israel-Palestine stuff. The Syrians are just spoilers now. They're very happy for this to be going on because it deflects any potential you know, attention from them. And obviously Israel is not going to be focused on, uh, you know, hitting some bases in, in, in Syria that might be, I don't know, producing anthrax or working with the Iranians. This is just a boon for the Syrians and Iranians to expand their, you know, Shiite crescent to even work with Hamas, even though they're Sunni. So, I mean, it's, it's great for the Syrians. And Iraq, very little has been said about Iraq or the, or the Kurds. Could they be the the honest brokers here, or does anyone trust them? Well, that's a great point. I mean, I, I go to the KRG for work. I was in Erbil a couple of years ago, and I was also there in 2010 when the status of forces agreement was ending. I do think the Kurds are respected in Israel, and they are respected in some parts of the Sunni Arab world, although not by the Palestinians. So uh, I would be very happy for some kind of KRG mediation but it's you know it's not like they're more respect they're more respected or they have more power than the saudis no they don't iraq is a is a dysfunctional state you know the krg isn't really governed at all by baghdad and erbil is like a separate political entity and then um in baghdad obviously there's a huge amount of dysfunction which is why they weren't able to fight off isis in 2014 and there's been so much corruption of the within the Iraqi army and the Shia militias uh, are funded by Iran. So I I Iraq is not a functioning place at all. Um, we've, we, the West, have dropped the ball. Do you know what I mean? If there was a neo-colonial burden as a result of the mistaken American invasion of Iraq, we haven't, you know, followed up to try to create the institutions that could uh, contain some of this disorder. I mean, these these situations in Syria and Iraq, we're dealing with non-states. Oh, so disaster on a disaster on a disaster. Has Hamas essentially become ISIS? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, no, Hamas is much better organized than ISIS. ISIS didn't have a coherent theology, I would argue. We can debate the question of imama another time, but they were really bad at their military organization. You know, they had some random volunteers from Manchester, Birmingham, who didn't know what they were doing. What's amazing about Hamas is they've been 
Iranian supplied and Iranian trained. And this was a very excellent coordinated, you know, centerpiece uh, military operation. And as disgusting and brutal and morally abhorrent as it is, you have to say, chapeau, Hamas performed stuff that ISIS never could have done. They've become much closer to Hezbollah in terms of uh, the, the, the sheer military effectiveness. Yeah, I bet there was no one from Birmingham or Manchester. That's what happens when you recruit people from Birmingham and Manchester. Uh, finally, Jason, you're talking to me from New Jersey. I mean, we you're way more optimistic about Joe Biden's international political muscle than I am or any of his muscles. I'm not sure if he has any left. Um, well, that's not fair. Well, we'll see. But uh, what, what does this do in terms of Trump? Trump has already punching as he does beneath the belt, blaming it all on Biden, on money that apparently the Americans have been given Iran. Is this going to change the politics of the next election in America? Might it make some Jews more sympathetic, American Jews sympathetic to Trump? It might. Uh, you're right. I'm not optimistic on its domestic ramifications. It pushes us into our different tribes. There will be some Republican Democrat, excuse me, some Reagan Democrats, many Jews in you know, upper middle class families have a Reagan Democrat legacy to them who will be like, yes, Obama and Biden pursued this Iran deal. They're to blame. You know, Trump was the one who moved the embassy to Jerusalem. Trump would have been good for the Israelis. However, Biden is arming the Israelis to the hilt. He gave this incredibly supportive speech. And he's the one who could, in theory, mediate with the Saudis and Egyptians and Qataris to try to do something. It's there for him for the taking, you know. And I have to say, as much as Biden may be low in energy, this is for Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken to do. And if they fail, they should face the blame, not Joe himself. This is not the, the president is not going to be doing the doing of this. I hope that he has the vision to instruct them to do it. But we need a moment where Blinken and Sullivan can shine.